Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support the show, please head over to the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. This episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers Mass Zymes. As you age, you can lose enzymes. If you do not have enough enzymes, you might only be absorbing 40% of the food you are eating. Most digestive enzymes are cheap and ineffective, and most do not have enough protease for digesting healthy, high-protein diets. That is why I am excited to tell you about the enzyme product called Masszymes. Masszymes is the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor and 3 to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. The Human Performance Outliers podcast was able to arrange the lowest pricing just for our audience. It is the best deal available on this product and it cannot be found anywhere else on the internet. You can save up to 48% off select bulk packages of Masszymes at www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human. Just do not forget to enter human10 at the checkout. The best part is if you do not feel how Masszymes transforms your digestion, you can get a no questions asked money back return on your order. So head over to www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code human10 at the checkout. Links and code can be found in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. Before we get rolling here, I just got one quick announcement to make. Uh, I've partnered with one of my sponsors, S-Fuels, to create an online virtual training stadium that we're calling SweatFest. So SweatFest includes all sorts of different running and biking type workouts. I know some of you are probably thinking, I like fast, I like intensity, I like speed sessions. Why would I want to go join Zach for one of his 100-mile race training sessions that are just long, slow, and boring? Well, we've got stuff for everyone. So even you speedsters out there, we've got an offering that is basically 30 seconds of all-out running followed by only 30 seconds of recovery. So we've got all those bases covered. They're all free. So head over to sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash stadium and check out our offerings and let me know what you think. Today's podcast is an interesting one. I'm excited about it for a variety of different reasons. I think a lot of the listeners are going to be excited about this one as well. Uh, My guest today is Michelle Hearn and Michelle and I got in contact, I believe as long, I think it was November, if not even earlier last year. And it seems like it, it seems like such a long time ago, but November's coming right up again here for this year. And uh, one of the reasons I think it, it was interesting is because Michelle, you reached out to me for, for some coaching 
a while back and uh, with the, with a mindset of doing your first ultra marathon. And I think we've probably picked at least three different 50 mile <laughs> races between then and now, assuming at this point, you'd probably have one, if not two under your belt, but as you would have it this year in 2020, everything is upside down. So every one of your, your, your planned events had gotten canceled, but you're such a trooper. You kept sticking to it and you keep putting work in and we're getting closer to what looks like an event that's actually going to get off the, get off the ground. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the reasons I think we, it'll be fun to maybe talk about some of that too, about just how, like how it's been training for your first ultra marathon and what, how that maybe has differed from some of the workouts and stuff that you've done historically. But I also want to get into a little bit of your background. Cause I think you have a really unique story and, and one, a lot of the listeners here will be interested in hearing. So if you don't mind, if you could just give us a little bit of a, a rundown of kind of what your background is and how you've kind of gotten to where you are at today. Yeah, Zach, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So, gosh, um, well, so I am a registered and licensed dietitian, but to, to kind of back up, my story really starts. Um, I am the youngest of four girls. I have three older sisters. I was born and raised right outside of Dallas, Texas in Plano. And at the age of 12, I had a very serious eating disorder. I was diagnosed with um, anorexia nervosa. Um, I think now it's just called anorexia. And I was hospitalized. I went to an inpatient hospital for two months. I actually, at that time, uh, I was almost five feet tall and I weighed just a little over 57 pounds. So uh, for science-minded people, my BMI was 11.7. At that point, I was given about a 10% chance to survive. I had all kinds of... Um, you know, kidney, my kidneys were shutting down, heart wasn't working. And I remember the doctor telling my parents that even if I did recover, you know, if I was able to survive, there was a pretty good chance that I wouldn't be able to be physically active. There's already like potentially permanent damage. And um, that was actually in the, in the treatment center was my first encounter with a dietitian. And <laughs> I, as someone who struggled with an eating disorder, you know, I had, um, you know, I'd memorized all the calories of everything. And I just remember thinking, like, I didn't understand what th this woman was trying to, you know, trying to teach. She would say that, like, you know, peanut butter is the same as chicken and these other things. And so even as a even as a 12 year old who was struggling with, you know, eating issues, I, I there was a big disconnect for food um, kind of from the beginning. But obviously, you know, move, moving forward, I did get significantly better. I was able to, you know, go home, go back to school and participate in sports again. And I love sports before I really struggled with the eating disorder. I played soccer and I played a little bit of basketball. I was kind of short. I actually tried out for a high school basketball team and I got cut and uh, they were going to put me into PE. And I remember saying like, gosh, I'd love to do a team sport. Is there any team sport I could do? And at that point, the only thing that they still had tryouts for was um, what the coach called this running thing. She said, you know, there's this running thing. I don't know if you'll like it. And I had no idea what the running thing was. I'd never heard of, uh, you know, I knew of track, but I'd never really heard of cross country as a sport. You know, I just turned 14 and I fell in love with it. Like I absolutely, where I went to school, it was a big school. There was 1200 in my graduating class and ninth and 10th grade were a different building than 11th and 12th. So I got to go run with the juniors and seniors. And I thought that was, that was really cool. So I was super excited about that. And I did really well. Um, as a 15-year-old, I, I won state for the state of Texas and the 3,200 meters are in a 1045. Um, but unfortunately, by my junior year, I started working with a club coach and um, I started restricting food again, you know, started following 
a vegetarian diet. You know, I grew up in Texas. So up to that point I'd eaten, you know, a lot of protein, a lot of meat. Um, and for about a year, I, I lost about, you know, 10 or 15 pounds at that time. I was only about hundred pounds and, you know, I stopped having periods. And, you know, at that point as a teenager, I had no idea how dangerous that could be, you know, for your body and for your bone structure. And my senior year of high school, as I was like running, running to class, I remember feeling this shift in my hip and it really hurt. And I was just like, my goodness, like did I step on something, but I didn't think much about it. And then the next, uh, next day when I went for a run, like I had this sharp shooting pain I'd never experienced before. And, you know, I told my coach, like something is really wrong, you know, and she knew like, and I was the person that liked to work out extra. So I wasn't, <laughs> so if I was complaining, something was really wrong. So, you know, fast forward, I had an x-ray and I had a stress fracture in my um, pubis ravis bone in the hip and which led to a bone density scan. And at the age of 18, I had osteopenia in my hips and osteoporosis in my spine. So um, that was a pretty scary diagnosis. And at that time I was being recruited by several uh, colleges to come run, you know, full scholarship for their teams. And after that, of course, you know, all the scholarship offers were off the table. Um, I did end up getting with a better club coach and I got on a prescription, um, medication for bone density. I, the, the club coach I got with, we, you know, immediately started eating more calories, more protein, and uh, I was able to walk on. I walked on to the University of Arkansas and ran there for uh, two years, but I had another really bad stress fracture. I just still had some of that leftover bone density um, depletion. And so, you know, I came home, came back to Texas and just decided like, all right, I want to, you know, I knew, I knew sports nutrition was powerful. I knew it had helped me from when I was really sick with anorexia to, you know, getting my body back, starting to get stronger. And so I decided like, you know, what if I could, what if I could help people that had had what I had, because there's such a power to empathy. You know, I, you know, it's one thing to say like, here, I, I've learned about this, but it's another thing to say like, Hey, I've lived it. I've experienced it. I've been on the very low, low, low. Um, and so, yeah, so I decided to become a registered dietitian <laughs> and you think, uh, you know, oh my gosh, if someone, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably have very strong opinions about traditional dietitians. Um, you know, you think you're going to go into this field and really help people like, yeah, I'm going to learn about, you know, fruits and grains and how great they are for people. And, you know, you get into the field and it's, a lot of it is pretty terrible. Like, you know, it's, uh, our, the Academy of Nutrition, which is the governing board of dietetics is, um, you know, we have a lot of corporate sponsors. There's a lot of conflict of interest, you know, PepsiCo is one of our biggest sponsors. So Pepsi, Frito-Lay. Um, Coca-Cola was for many years at the, uh, our last big nutrition conference was sponsored by GlaxoKleinSmith, which is makes diabetic drugs. And so, you know, we have, we're, we're taught that we have to have all these carbohydrates, right? So tons and tons of carbohydrates. And I understood blood sugar stability. I knew that was really important, but I had no idea, um, like how important that was for everybody. Like, I just thought like, okay, if you're diabetic, you really need to be careful with your carbohydrates. You need to balance them but I was sure everybody needed carbohydrates. And so, you know, through my dietetic career, I, I saw a lot of people just continue to get sicker. You know, some people did a little better, but working in acute care, you'd see someone come in with, you know, diabetes and they come back, you know, a month or two with infections. And, you know, we're not just seeing, this is another thing I, I, I really, if you haven't been in a hospital setting, like I'm not just seeing someone who's a little bit overweight or maybe has a little bit of struggles with blood sugar. Like, you know, right now in the United States, 70% of the population is overweight or obese. And the last two um, hospitals I've worked in, 60% of the dietitians I work with are obese. 
um, it's, it's a big problem. And we're seeing diabetes causes, you know, rotting flesh, um, you know, neuropathy, people can't feel their feet, people um, go blind. It's a total mess. And uh, it wasn't really until I started having problems with my own running and my own blood sugar that I put together kind of how significant it was. Like, I, I knew it was a problem, but I really didn't take a step back and say like, wow, this really, really changing how we look at carbohydrates can absolutely change, not just, you know, my life as a, as a dietitian and athlete, but also kind of our, the health of our nation. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, it's a really interesting backstory in the sense that like, I think, you know, coming from myself as a former teacher, you know, I used to work with 12 year olds all the time when I taught seventh grade and just like the range of experiences that you can get when you have, uh, you know, that, that age demographic from just what they're exposed to, like what pressures are put on them or not put on them versus their peers. And then just the whole, like the whole, like just process of kind of finding yourself and where you fit within this, this group of people can be very, very daunting and exciting at the same time. And you, you see, you see stories that are, both, uh, both tragic as well as, uh, hopefully, um, you know, successful long-term too. But like, I always think about when I hear stories like yours, I always think of myself, like it reminds me of like maybe some of the supports I probably had when I was 12 that I didn't appreciate or realize at the time that not everyone does have. And it's just such a, it's such an eye-opening kind of thought experiment to go through because the one I always try to do with myself is I think of like, you hear a story of someone either having a real rough childhood or, you know, rising up after that. And I think to myself, like, okay, if I had that experience, would I have made it out of it? And, you know, I, I find myself more often than not thinking, I don't know if I would have, I might've made like continued to make the wrong decisions or something like that, especially at that age. So I always find it really interesting when you have, you know, individuals who've had a, a big hurdle like that early on in their life, like how that impacts the rest of their life, as well as just, you know, how their mind is shaped to eventually like, you know, put that in their past to a degree, not necessarily forget about it because you probably want to lean on some of the experiences in terms of making like the right choices and things going forward. But, but also, you know, acknowledging that like, you can't really think of like it as, okay, I missed these opportunities at a young age because I made this decision or this decision was kind of pushed on me. And you can get yourself in kind of a negative mindset, I think too, if you start overly like, like leaning on that or not, maybe not leaning on it, but like just over. Is that, is that kind of like, what was that like for you as you kind of started to recognize, okay, this is probably an ongoing thing that I'm going to have to deal with, but how do I use this to my advantage? So I don't make a mis do make more mistakes and yeah. ultimately get to where you want to be. Yeah, there's a few really interesting segues that I'll, I'll use that you that you um, kind of opened up there. Like one, I didn't discuss it um, a ton. I definitely, and I'll, well, I'm sure we'll get to this a little later. I'm writing a book, but my, um, I have a really good relationship with both my parents now, but my mom was bipolar and struggled with eating issues growing up. And so that was incredibly challenging, um, absent quite a bit, dealt with severe anxiety and depression. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was really difficult. And then to, you know, now that I'm an adult, you know, I just turned 37. Um, you know, I have a niece who just turned 14 and I remember when she turned 12, I was like, Oh my gosh, like she's, you know, young and she's still goofing off with her friends and stuff. Like, 
at that age, I was so sick and I was so, um, you know, just profoundly struggling. So, you know, as I got older, you know, I remember when I had my stress fracture at the University of Arkansas, I was really, really sad. Well, I mean, I certainly was sad when I had both of them, but I felt like, man, I fought back so hard to get to college and to get a, I was on a partial academic scholarship there to, but to walk onto the team and I actually got to travel. I was, I was, I went to nationals, I went to the regional meet and to think like, man, if I had just been able to take better care of myself, if I had just had more support as a teenager and as a young adult, would I have had a healthier body? Would I be able to compete in college? Because, um, you know, anyone who's been able to run with college in college or in high school, even it's, it's, a, it's so much camaraderie. It was an incredible experience. And I was really sad that I wasn't able to, to finish it out. But then I also, you know, as I've gotten older, um, I think, you know, I, it might sound a little cliche, but I'm incredibly grateful. You know, I often look back and think like, man, I had a very small chance just to survive. And now not only am I surviving, you know, I have a, um, you know, I have, I have a career, I have goals. Um, you know, I've been healthy enough to run, you know, I've run 12 marathons, you know, I, um, you know, everything in my life, all, all the obstacles have kind of led me here and they've led me to like, I wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't be writing this book if I hadn't gone through my experiences. And, you know, I, the girl who's helping me edit, um, she said, yeah, you know, you're going to write the book that like we needed, you know, she, she struggled with the eating disorder as well. Like what if this had been available when we were both, you know, had severe anorexia and because there really isn't a good direction <laughs> for people um, when you're dealing with an eating disorder, if somebody listening to this has a child or a friend with an eating disorder, or um, we're going to, my book goes through people with mental illnesses as well as diabetes and sarcopenia. And I think the diet that can help kind of heal your mind is very similar, but like everything I've gone through has, um, has led me here. And I'm also very grateful. I've had some really important people in my life. You know, my, um, I've like I said, I have three older sisters and they've been, you know, especially at different times in my life, very, um, you know, key to helping me out, whether it's either financially or emotionally. I have some great friends. Um, I'm married uh, to have a wonderful wife. So yeah, so overall, I am really grateful. But I also do, it, it is key and it is crucial. I mean, nobody escapes middle school or high school without dealing with some heartbreak and, you know, some trauma. But, you know, just being kind, um, you know, talking, having good support systems is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. It's uh it's always interesting to see how people navigated that and what, what they used as tools to kind of get to where they got and, and then ultimately how they learn from both mistakes and successes. So like in your, in your, obviously a, a pretty, uh, um, a pretty big example, I think of finding, finding a way, way out of maybe a, a more difficult situation than a lot of people would, would like to have to try to handle at that age. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's talk a bit about kind of just like your path through nutrition after that. Cause I, w- I would imagine, you know, with your, your three older sisters, your parents and any friends and, you know, family members around, you know, when, when someone has had a history with an eating disorder, it almost becomes like a bit of a responsibility for the people around them to, to help keep an eye on them, at least in the early stages. If I'm understanding a lot of the trajectory through this, where, you know, like it's, it's an easy thing to kind of fall back into, like you kind of mentioned before, and kind of having that support there to kind of help shape the decisions you're going to make, I think is, is important. So how did, how did that play out for you as you kind of moved on into adulthood and were deciding like what kind of like dietary habits you wanted to take on? Yeah. You know, this is something that's interesting. This is something I think where, 
um, distance running actually helped me out quite a bit because I, you know, when I found out I had a knack for it and I really enjoyed it, um, you know, I couldn't run if I didn't, didn't eat or didn't eat enough. So it was kind of like, I had that, I had that intrinsic motivation. Um, you know, my, my next oldest sister, I like said three older sisters, my next oldest sister is only 14 months older than I am. So we grew up very close. And so kind of as in that, that teenage years when I was recovering, she was a huge part of, um, just my support and just, and, you know, not even like, you know, being the food police or anything, but just kind of being present. And I think that's mostly, especially if you're, you're ever dealing with an adult that has an eating disorder, you know, you can't say, oh, you need to eat this or are you eating enough? You know, um, but just kind of being present, listening, sitting with me, eating, and the more it, it's like anything else, like time on task, the more I was able to, you know, to be able to eat and to, you know, see that the world doesn't end and um, kind of keep going in that direction, like the more, you know, normal it became. But of course, like, you know, certainly throughout my 20s and in difficult times, um, especially, you know, with stress and, you know, going through into school and into the dietetic internship, you know, I, I definitely went back to restricting and uh, relapsed a couple of times, not to where I was hospitalized, but, you know, fell back into old behaviors, which is pretty, you know, the more research I did for my book is pretty, uh, <laughs> is pretty common. So I think the biggest thing is just being able to recognize like, okay, I'm really struggling. And, um, you know, learning new coping skills, learning emotional management skills, you know, that was something that I wasn't really taught. I don't think a lot of people are taught effective emotion, um, emotional management skills as children. You know, we usually learn that from our parents, you know, like I said, I have a good relationship with both my parents and um, I'm very grateful. I know they did the absolute best they could, uh, but like <laughs> things were challenging in our household. You know, my mom didn't say like, oh my goodness, Shell, like I'm stressed. I'm going to journal and go for a walk. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was like screaming and yelling and all that stuff. So, um, so I had to learn that as an adult, you know, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm like in my twenties and I have to figure out how to handle life, you know? Um, but also, you know, I found certainly later on that how I fueled my body had the, a really powerful impact on my mind. Like, I think we all kind of intuitively know that, right? Like, oh, of course, what I eat is going to influence my mental health. But I didn't really know the details of that. And that certainly isn't something that we teach, um, you know, in dietetics. So that, that was something that I, I learned, um, you know, as I kind of dive deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting because I think like, in some cases, when you have like an eating disorder situation, it can be kind of hard to maybe reach that person until it really hits close to home for them. So for you, like it was pro when you had the, you know, the bone density issue, it was probably pretty apparent that, okay, I need to make some choices that are different nutritionally or, or I'm just not gonna be able to do the activity I love the most. And sometimes it takes maybe that being removed to really, really appreciate that in a situation like that. But um, it's a hard thing. It's like, you don't want to wish that on someone where it's like, okay, we're going to, you know, take away the, the thing you love the most that you've worked hard for. I mean, you were a state champion at 1045, 3200 meter, which is an incredibly fast time for a high school student. It's fast for a high school boy. <laughs> so like, it's, uh, you know, it's very fast, uh, you know, running things like that. So you're clearly motivated. You clearly were doing the right things in training and things like that. And uh, to have to kind of learn that lesson the hard way is both difficult, but also, kind of like you said, maybe a bit of a, a nudge in the right direction to, to do the, to, to make better choices on the nutritional front. Um, do you, uh, did you find that like, as you kind of moved through your, your, your school and things with, uh, 
dietetics that you were drawn to kind of a specific type of nutritional strategy at that time? Or did you just, were you just kind of like more or less keeping an eye on like, okay, well, how's my bone density doing? How's my energy levels doing? And then trying to kind of feed yourself to match what your body was telling you? Yeah. So, you know, as I went through college, like when I, um, when I had my stress fracture at Arkansas, like, unfortunately it was in a pretty unique place. It was in the back of my, my left iliac crest. Um, and just, you know, once again, product of low bone density. Um, and so that was, you know, effectively the end of my college running career. And so I actually, when I went back to Texas to go to school, um, that's where I finished out my dietetic career. And at that point I wasn't sure, like, what am I going to do with my running? Like if I'm not in college. Um, and so at that point I was just kind of following the, like the standard American diet, like what they told us, you know, okay, I'm going to eat, you know, lots of carbs. I'm going to eat my bread. I'm going to drink milk. I'm going to eat fruit. Um, you know, I, at that point was eating, you know, protein, we ate beef and chicken, um, not a ton, but a little bit. And, and that was kind of, uh, I mean, I would say that was kind of what I did for most of my twenties. Like I did, I did that. I ended up getting into marathoning, um, at the age I was 25 was my first marathon <laughs> and it was terrible. I said, I'm never doing this again. This is terrible. <laughs> um, but you know, I ended up doing, I think 12 marathons. You know, my fastest marathon was, uh, two fifty four seventeen. And I, you know, at that point that was 2017, I, I wanted to, um, qualify for the Olympic trials. So that was kind of a big goal there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's an, an exciting, an ex- exciting sport in and of itself, the marathon. I think it's always like, it's a tricky one. Cause I think it's, uh, it's just, I've said this before on the show, but the marathon happens to just be like this perfect combination of both long and fast at the same time where, you know, you pay dearly for any mistake you make, but you can't make too many or any of them to really execute a good race. So um, it's certainly, you know, I always find it interesting when I'm working with uh, folks training for an ultra marathon that have a history in marathon training, because I always think the marathon training plan and schedule can sometimes be the hardest one just because of the blend of workouts you really need to do to get, to get good at the pace that you're going to try to nail for that. But 254 for a marathon for your, for your first go of it. Uh, oh no, that wasn't my first go. That was, <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm giving you too much credit. <laughs> yeah. That was my best time. That was my first okay. Go. I mean, either way, 254 is a fast marathon time. So um, credit to you for that, uh, you know, especially after the hurdles you went through in high school and college and to, you know, get to that point where um, I'm sure at one point you were probably just, you know, happy to get back to running and being able to do it, do it healthfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of led you to, uh, um, let me, let me step back. you so you finished your, your dietetics degree and what was kind of the next pathway for your career at that point? Yeah. So, you know, when I went into the dietetic internship, like I really wanted to work, I, I thought like, you know what, I want to work with young women with eating disorders. Cause that's, that was what I had. And that's where my, you know, I, I think I can have like empathy and I can help. And I got to do a part of my internship in an eating disorder clinic and it was really hard. It was, it was pretty exhausting. And I was like, I don't know if I could do this, um, 40 hours a week, you know, every single day we had a young person actually code and, and pass away, like during the time I was there. And that was, that was really challenging. And so, you know, I got to see several different areas of acute care and, you know, and actually that was the first time I started to question because it was my first experience working like in a hospital setting. Like, I'm not sure that this is the best thing we're doing for people. I saw, you know, we're giving diabetics, you know, lots of uh, sugary drinks, those insured drinks and giving them insulin. 
Um, you know, we had people come in with heart disease and we were feeding them lots of carbohydrates, but really restricting fat. And I was like, I don't know if we should be giving people like, but I was young, I was a new diet, you know, new and I'm in school. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I'm not sure if I understand what's going on. So my first job opportunity right out of the internship, they offered me a, a supervisor position where we were just transitioning over to room service at a hospital in Portland. So p patients actually get to call and order food versus just get, you know, serve the food at seven, noon and five, whatever is available. Right. And so I was, um, I was working with that, that patient population. And so I really, that was a really neat opportunity. I really appreciated that, but I was kind of removed from the clinical world during that first part of my um, dietitian journey. And so um, my partner, well, at that time, she's my girlfriend and I moved to Colorado and that was my first acute care job. And so that was the first time I saw, um, you know, working in the clinic and just saw how profoundly bad uh, our dietitian recommendations are. I couldn't, I couldn't believe, I think most people would think like, hey, you're a dietitian, you're going to go in and you're going to talk to a patient and you're going to talk about their diet and what's good and wh how we can help you. And I mean, I had so many patients. I mean, you have like 20 patients. You're going to have to spend 20 to 30 minutes charting on each person. Um, you, you don't have time. And most patients are just, you know, they're so sick or they're hurting. And I was told like, their only goal is to make sure they're eating protein and calories. Like their kidneys are failing. They got to take care of that their own time. Their blood sugar's through the roof. It doesn't matter if they're eating brownies. We don't care. And so there was this huge disconnect between like, okay, well, I want to help, but I'm just giving you sugar and water. Like this doesn't feel right. And so, you know, I brought up concerns to my, my clinical director and, you know, she basically said like, look, we're here to check boxes, get insurance reimbursement, move on. Like that was, <laughs> mm -hmm. that was kind of, and you know, I, I'm not here saying that most, I, I think every, every person that goes in the field really cares They're, we're going into it because we want to help people. We believe in nutrition but we're, we need to be honest with what our results are. You know, our country, like I said, there's 70% of people are either overweight or obese. It's estimated that 88% have some type of metabolic problem, like high blood sugar. Um, you know, and here's another thing that I was often told, and I was told by doctors, like, hey, look, you know, it's not, if the patients would just do what we ask them, you know, we tell patients to eat healthy, and we tell them to exercise more, and we tell them to eat fruits and vegetables, it's just they're not doing it. And statistically, that's not right. Statistically, we are eating, it's 21% more whole grains than we have this is since 1970. 21% more whole grains. We're eating more fruits and vegetables. We're eating significantly less animal fat, less beef, less pork, way less eggs, way more chicken. And we're sicker and fatter, you know? Um, it's not, and you know, I've had patients, and you know, and I have my own YouTube channel. I've had people come on and say like, look, I was trying so hard. I was doing everything that I was told to do, yet... I was becoming really, really sick, you know? So I was struggling with that. I was struggling with like, what, what, am, what are we doing wrong? What is, is it just, is it really that people are just lazy? Like I, I started to really question, like, am I helping people? Is my profession really in the business of helping people? So that was, um, that was a big, that was, a, <laughs> that was kind of my last, you know, my last, my last hurdle from um, before I ended up having, you know, switching my diet and kind of, transitioning into what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. 
And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to me as kind of an outsider looking in. I try to always kind of make sure I'm, thinking of my thinking of like my own just like lack of knowledge in, in the field of nutrition before I make any like like wide sweeping generalizations. But like one thing I feel like I notice a lot is that when we get to any sort of like nutrition strategy, like even from like just the standard recommendations that we'll see that promoted um, and certified all the way to like a vegan diet or a ketogenic diet or anything in between is like, I feel like whenever you get specific with what someone should and should not be eating, the success rate plummets and you end up with like this scenario where no matter what diet you kind of pick, um, your success percentage is very low. So to me, what that says intuitively is that like, you know, first of all, people are very different into, into what's going to be kind of more intuitive or natural for them or sustainable for them. And if that's the case, we have these really low success rates with essentially any strategy, why not offer a whole bunch of strategies and then ultimately try to catch people with what's going to work for them. And, you know, I guess the pushback on that is probably if we have like dietary interventions that have success rates of like, say five to 10%, we're going to need 10 to 20 different approaches if we want to have a, a, a close to hundred percent success rate. Sure. Um, so it might just be overwhelming to like the industry and overwhelming uh, to the profession because here we have, like you said, 70, I think you said 70% of people are. Yeah. So like 70% of people is like, if you're saddled with a job to fix 70% of the population with anything, you're almost in a position where you have to try to pick a strategy and just hammer it home versus offer that, like just that wide range of stuff, which I can totally appreciate if, if we decided as a country, okay, we're going to offer, you know, 20 different options for people to choose from the education behind that is going to be huge. Like the, the mentor to student ratio is going to have to be really, really tight. So like, there's probably just not like, <laughs> there's not enough dietitians out there and probably not enough money and a lot of resources to do that. And my hope would be that like eventually with technology and some of this, like, I guess, telemed, you'd maybe be able to get a little higher success rate for some of these interventions. And I think we've seen that to a degree with like programs like Verta, where my guess is the reason why Verta has a higher success rate than say, you know, just a ketogenic diet or even a, a low carb, high fat diet is because they have a lot more access to the resources and tools that wouldn't have been available to them if they're just trying to do it on their own. Yeah. You think I'm kind of on point there or where am I? Well, making- you know, here's the thing is like, <laughs> I, I agree. There was a book written in the 1960s called strong medicine. And there's a line in there that I just, I keep coming back to. And he says that like, 
Um, I don't want to botch it, but the point is that like, there's strength and simplicity, like medicine, like everything else he said needs to be as simple as possible. And I'll tell you what, like when I've seen a, a patient like who's, um, you know, 400 pounds and is about to have their leg, leg amputated from diabetes, like you're, you're in a crisis, like patients are in a crisis. Nobody says like, hey, I'm in a crisis, challenge me. I need 20 different options, right? Like <laughs> people, like, I think we actually have made it too complicated. I mean, if you get on the internet and you Google like nutrition, you're going to get everything you're going to get. If you eat animal products, you're going to die and you're going to eat. If you eat plant products, you're going to die. And we need high fat, low fat, no fat. You know, like we've confused everybody so much. And so um, I think this is like, if, if I could segue into kind of how I found like a lower carbohydrate diet, um, you know, I actually was, you know, training for a marathon and I started having like severe muscle pain, like to the point where I'd go on a, a two mile run and I was getting cold sweats. I was waking up in the middle of the night. And at that point I was eating, you know, 350 plus grams of carbohydrates a day, quite a bit of carbs. And I was just not recovering from workouts. And I was kind of scared. I was frustrated. I wasn't a super nice person to be around. You know, I was eating probably four or five times a day. And I, I talked to a couple of different sports dietitians and they were just like, yeah, you need to eat more. You need to eat more times a day and more carbohydrates. So I got up to eating, you know, 450 plus grams of carbs a day. And I just literally like running fell off a cliff. My anxiety went through the roof. I felt terrible. And my kind of come to Jesus moment was I, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night with just searing muscle pain. And I it's like two in the morning and I drove to 7-Eleven and got like all these big bags of ice and put it in the bathtub. And I'm sitting in the bathtub and ice bath at like 2.30 in the morning. And my wife comes in and is like, you know, maybe we should think about doing something different. And it was like, yeah, we were really like, that was a really nice way of saying like, what the, yeah, are you doing? Right. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I'm done, you know? And I, and then I talked to some people and like, Hey, you know, at that point I was 36, maybe you're too old to be training this much. Maybe you're too old to be a marathoner. And so I decided I was just going to take a break from running and well, shoot, if I'm not running, then I knew I didn't love how carbohydrates made me feel. So I was like, well, I can be a ketogenic for a while. I can, and the whole goal was like, I just want to heal my muscle pain. Like my muscles hurt. I need a break. And so I discovered, um, and that's when I learned about you and your, you know, that you run all these miles on a low carbohydrate diet. I was just fascinated. I was like, oh, no way. Um, but I was familiar with blood sugar stability. I just, I was so sure. And I'd been so indoctrinated that all people need carbohydrates. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to try this, um, you know, not a ketogenic diet. I went to more of the carnivore, more meat. Cause I was like, Hey, the extra protein will be good for gluconeogenesis to make sure I have a little bit of glucose in my muscles. And, and, uh, you know, talking about having a history of an eating disorder, I've been with my, um, she's my wife now, I, she was my, uh, we've been together for over 11 years. So she did not like this idea of eating all meat and fat. She thought this was crazy and eating disordered and, um, you know, but she was like, all right, you're an adult, do whatever you want. You're going to quit in a few weeks. And after about three or four weeks, she said, come sit with me. And she was like, I am not sure I like this yet, but this is the best your anxiety has been in 11 years. Like, I don't know what's going on, but this is, this is way better. And so from that point on, I was like, okay, I got to figure out, like, I've spent my entire dietitian career at that point about, you know, eight years thinking everybody has to have carbs and we need to be eating several times a day. And here I am like not eating any carbohydrates, eating a lot of protein and fat. And for the first time in my life, I'm not anxious. I, my muscles were fine too. My body healed, but I, I kind of attributed that to like, well, I'm just not running. And so when I reached out to you, I was kind of like, oh my goodness, I'm really scared. I'm going to try to start running um, again. But, you know, I've been very successful uh, running, you know, we've gotten up to 30 miles at a time on a, on a low carbohydrate diet. 
Uh, and I'm certainly not anti-carbohydrate. I do think that most people can tolerate at least small amounts of carbohydrates. You know, from my training, um, when, when we were doing like 40 to 50 miles a week, I was great at like 50 grams of carbs a day. The, the harder, the higher we've gone, you know, now most days I'm between a 75 and 100 grams of carbs. Um, but in general, you know, I, <laughs> it's very funny to be that, for, you know, when I was the, working in an office as a dietitian, you know, they're there with their bagels and their oatmeal and I've got this like bowl of ground beef <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> so very different. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's really interesting. But then it was kind of hard not to be angry because I'm like, you know, I've suffered so much, you know, I've, I've had so much anxiety throughout my entire life. And I watched, you know, over these eight years, I've watched patients just, you know, I've had people have limbs amputated and kidney failure and, and people die. Um, and I've seen so much, I have a little chapter in my book on sarcopenia, you know, uh, individuals that are so fat, so obese, but so they don't have any muscle, they're malnourished. And we continue to come out with these recommendations that just say, hey, you know what, you know, 60% carb, 20% protein, 20% fat, where in reality, like you're asking, do we need 20 different recommendations? I say no, I say we need to say like, no animal, like, you know, we have, um, we, we have like a zoo in my house, we have a dog, we have a baby tortoise, and we have four chickens. Every animal has a species specific diet. You know, my dog doesn't have 20 different diet. The tortoise has a very species specific diet. Humans do too. You know, humans have a species specific diet. We evolved because we ate meat and fat. You know, the human body is designed to really effectively burn fat for fuel. That's why I like all your hormones, all your blood glucose, all your levels are very stable when you do that. When you move away from that, you know, that's when we start to see quite a bit of problems. You know, when cultures, we know that, um, eat a lot of meat and fat, like the Maasai or the, you know, the Inuit Eskimos, um, they have no heart disease. They have no cancer. It's not until we add those and um, those sugars and those flowers that they really have a lot of issues. And once again, I'm certainly not anti-carbohydrate, but I think the problem is what was intended to be like, oh, we're going to have small seasonal fruits or, oh, we're going to ferment some sourdough and have it, you know, a small piece once a day. We do massive amounts several times a day. So I think if we started with that foundation, like, okay, we're going to make sure we get plenty of meat and plenty of fat. And then we kind of build from there. I think that would be, um, I think that would be ideal. And I think we've shown through, through the data that, you know, humans are certainly able to absorb, you know, all the things from, from animal products. That's a huge mistake we've made in nutrition. If I could like go back and teach all nutrition, like 101 students, um, it doesn't matter what a product has. It matters what your body can absorb. Like, I don't give a, I don't know if you can curse on your podcast. I don't give a crap. It's vitamin A. If a carrot has this much vitamin A, your body can absorb it. 45% of people cannot absorb the, the, um, the form of vitamin A kind of like iron. You can eat spinach until you pass out. Your body cannot absorb that non-heme iron, right? Like it doesn't really matter. It'd be like me writing you a check, but I have no money in my bank account. Because, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of what we've done. So I think we have to get back to like, okay, let's get back to what we know humans can absorb. And then let's go from there because some people tolerate all carbohydrates. Fine. You know, I've talked to people that have a lot of autoimmune issues, a lot of joint inflammation if they eat certain plants. And certainly, um, we, we don't take carbohydrate or sugar addiction seriously, which is actually, you know, a lot of people struggle with, um, you know, their food addictions or even full on like binge eating disorders that I think can really be um, alleviated if we actually start feeding the body with the protein and fat and restricting the carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it is really interesting when you think about it. And I think some of this is just like a byproduct of how much food availability we have, especially in the kind of the first world countries is you can get yourself to a sit. Well, actually, maybe what I should say is like, by the time you've kind of 
done enough damage to really recognize the damage is there. You've gone in so many different directions due to the food availability. You don't really know what's causing what anymore. So you almost have to kind of like go back to square one and say, okay, I'm just going to like eat only things that are like highly bioavailable, easy to digest, kind of almost hit the reset button for however long. And then, then maybe start kind of bringing things back. And essentially what you're saying that you have this foundation of like foods that you just know do don't, aren't going to harm your body. And maybe that limits what you're able to do on a performance side of things for a little while, as you let your body kind of recover and figure things out. But then, you know, then you can start like supplementing with some of these other food groups that maybe potentially have a higher risk reward, uh, you know, outcomes to them, depending on the person's digestibility of them and find out for yourself if you do well with, you know, X vegetable or X product and things like that. And then almost develop your individual protocol at at that point. And really, I think like the biggest difference between kind of like what I'm eating and what like you'd see in kind of like the standard recommendations or carbohydrate based things is like, I'm just essentially eating like I'm flipping carbs and fats on their head. So like if, if we want to call like one balanced and one unbalanced, that's not, that really doesn't make sense in my mind because like if I'm, if I'm eating say 60% fat, 20% protein, 20% carbs versus someone who's doing like what you said, 60% carbs and like a 20, 20% split on the others. It's like, who's to say which one's balanced and which one's an imbalanced at that point. Then it's just kind of like a favoritism from carbs over fats. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, first of all, you nailed it. I think that um, most people, especially if you're, if you have any type of like issue, like, you know, like you said, pain is a really powerful motivator. Like it's often, people don't often change when things are going really great. You know, it's like, wow, if everything's great, why do I need to change my diet? But um, you know, many of the people that I've spoken with or reached out to me or, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm obese. I'm diabetic. I'm severely depressed. I'm hurting everywhere. Like often when you get to that point, I think it's a really good idea to go back to square one. Like, okay, you know, like you said, remove everything, remove all the potential allergens. Like, yeah, for when I first started this for about 30 days, I just did like meat, fat, water, you know, and I knew, and we talked about this, um, you and I, when we first started talking, like, you know, we, this is going to be a really low intensity training time. You know, I don't think it's a great idea to, I mean, I don't think you could marathon train like I'm not sure you can marathon train off a zero carb diet <laughs> in general or a very low carb diet. That could be a whole nother conversation just because of the type of, um, you know, high heart rate you have to have for that prolonged period of time. But, um, you know, giving your body a chance to kind of reset, I think mm-hmm. is, a, is a really, it's kind of a huge thing. And then from there, like you said, you can kind of build out. And yeah, it's really interesting that I've had people tell me like, man, uh, you know, if you're going to restrict, you know, sugar and that, that's a really restrictive diet. It's like we've we've come to um, we've come to accept that like you have to have these things right like oh sugar is so great we celebrate birthdays anniversaries all these things with sugar but for many people you know it's really damaging to the body it's really a lot of people have um, you know true sugar addictions or certainly if you're diabetic and you're, you can't handle the blood sugar that is not something your system needs um, I want to say one other thing about what we were talking about but I. I lost track. I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll think of it eventually. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it is interesting because I think like, um, I, it was a long time ago. I actually need to reach out to Dr. Schindler and have him back on. Cause, uh, he's just a really, I don't know if you've listened to any of his stuff before, uh, Dr. Bill Schindler, but he, uh, he's visited a lot of these different, like kind of like tribes that haven't oh, really, yeah. mm-hmm. so they're eating, they're eating essentially an ancestral diet. And one thing he said was really eye opening for him is like an ancestral diet is really dependent on where that 
where that individual is living because the ancestral diet for one group is maybe different than another group. You know, you have the tribes down in South America who are eating this diet rich in like potatoes and like this kind of clay that they dip it into like, I guess, uh, combat like the toxins inside the potatoes that they're eating which apparently are like mostly poisonous. I didn't realize that. Until I met like <laughs> Probably the cassava. cassava yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's really funny to think of that. Like, you know, we've, we've got potatoes that are very edible, but like, you know, a lot of them will kill you. So like, but the prepa- the preparation is everything with that. So they came up with a solution. I don't know how they figured this out without killing themselves off, but they found out they could like mix this potato. Well, first of all, I should back up. They would dump, like, I think, I think, Dr. Schindler said they'd put like a ton worth of potatoes, they'd bury them and let them ferment there for, I think it was up to like six months. And then what they would take them back out and they would dip them in this like clay and that clay like neutralized the toxins in there and it made it very bioavailable. And then he, uh, he also was out with the Maasai who, you know, they're eating like loads of uh, like dairy and and blood and and animal products. So it's like basically a polar opposite of this other tribe. And and I think like what I thought about after he said that is like what, what all these tribes kind of have in common is it's almost impossible to eat like way past, past satiation because you just don't have that food availability. You, mm-hmm. you, you might only have a few select food options to begin with, and then you probably don't have enough to, to be gluttonous with it. So like, <laughs> you know, you, you don't, you just don't run into like a situation in nature where you can overeat carbohydrates to the degree where you would drive a lot of these issues we have with the food availability we have um, is kind of one of the takeaways maybe I had, whether it's right or wrong is uh, I could be corrected on that. I'm sure. But um, it's just interesting to think about that where it's like, you know, cause you get like, you know, you get these, the, the, the disagreements and whatnot on social media about, you know, is sugar good or sugar bad? And then it's like, is sugar bad in high quantities? And I think everyone agrees. Yes. But is it like, is it bad if it's within your, um, your energy demands? Like, are you, are you essentially, are you burning what you're taking in and all this other stuff? And it's just like, I think like some of it is gets so kind of complicated due to the confounding variables that it's really hard to tease out one thing or the other, but, um, you know, ultimately then it just becomes kind of, a, I guess, a bit of an individual responsibility to find out like what is going to be sustainable for you from a dietary pattern, um, versus like someone else who maybe has success on a different approach. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's also why I think it's good to like build your foundation, you know, and for certainly for me and, you know, I know for many people like, um, you know, I was high carb for a very long time and I struggled so much with anxiety and, you know, um, I'm done. I'm sure, you know, depression, you know, is the number one cause of disability worldwide. Like more people don't go to work because of depression than we're in a car accident or have cancer, you know, like, and, um, and even iron deficiency is the number one mineral, like 25% of the world is iron deficient. Like it's, these are gnarly. And these are things that I, you know, I think we have to ask, like, is what else is going on? Not just in the U S but certainly in the world, like what other epidemic, you know, and we have obesity and we have more access, like you said, to these really highly processed foods than we've ever had before. Um, and, you know, there's certainly, we know that our brains don't regulate processed carbohydrates well. Like most people, you know, like if you sat down and you had, you know, a huge steak, like I say it was over a pound, like you're probably not even going to get through it. At some point your brain will be like, Hey, we're full. Your stomach will be like, Hey, Mm -hmm. we're full where that doesn't really happen with carbohydrates very well. Like most people can eat an entire bag of chips, you know, plow through a whole thing of Oreos, you know, it's, 
And it's not like, and you know, and then of course the medical professional like, oh, you're so gluttonous, blah, blah, blah. But those, those things, those chemicals override your brain. You're going to get that blood sugar spike, but, and it's not just, you know, of course it's your blood sugar spike and crash. And then you kind of set yourself up to, you know, once you crash, you have the sugar craving. So it's a cycle, but also we know that when you take in a lot of processed carbohydrates or seed oils, that it actually shifts the neurotransmitters in your brain. You know, it basically, um, kind of puts the pedal to the metal for the neurotransmitter glutamate. And what that does, you know, glutamate goes through the roof, which also dopamine goes through the roof. And that, um, that can cause a lot of anxiety for people. And that can also prevent the brain from engaging in neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is very important in like coping with stress, coping with daily stress from being able to process things you've learned. So, you know, let's say people are eating all this fast food or all these processed foods, they get this huge dopamine hit. So initially they feel really good. Um, but you know, they get the blood sugar spike and then they crash and then they're super stressed. They feel guilty and overwhelmed and kind of the cycle continues. You know, we get people, um, we get people kind of caught up in these, in these issues. And unfortunately I think we have a, we have a dietitian culture that just says like, Hey, have this in moderation, have a cookie in moderation, or ice cream in moderation. First of all, nobody knows what moderation is. You can ask 20 different people, you'll get 20 different answers. Is it once a day, once a week, twice a day, you know? Um, second of all, like I just said, our brains can't do moderation with carbohydrates. Um, third of all, we're sponsored by all these quote unquote moderation companies, you know, Pepsi and, uh, Hershey's and, um, gosh, well, General Mills, um, used to be Betty Crocker, Coca-Cola, all these companies sponsor the Academy. So to me, it's, it's really unfortunate. I think most people that are struggling with obesity and and like, this isn't, this isn't you, this isn't the ultra runners. This isn't the people like, Hey, you know what, if you're metabolically healthy and you want to experiment with certain things for your, for your um, specific races or training, go for it, knock yourself out. Most of the people that we're dealing with are people that are not metabolically healthy. So I think it's, I think it's not okay to tell these people to have these highly processed foods in moderation. I think it's, I think as a healthcare professional, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, dietitian, whatever you are, our first premise is do no harm. Right. And so are we doing no harm by, by suggesting giving these things to somebody when we know the physiological consequences, like we know that you're going to have that blood sugar spike and crash. Um, I don't think everybody understands the, the potential effect it has on your brain. Um, so yeah, I have, I have real, I have real issues with that. And I've, I'm, <laughs> as you might've guessed, I'm not super popular in the dietetic industry. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to call this out. I don't think this is, you know, my book is going to, we're going to really dive into this. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not good. And I am, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in helping people than I am in, you know, trying to, to maintain something that I think is, isn't working and isn't, isn't based on science and isn't based on human physiology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the moderation foods are interesting to me because I, I always feel like I hear that a lot and maybe I'm missing the second half of the message, but no one's ever defining moderation when they say that. Like there's like eating moderation and then no one's following up with like, and if you find out that you're unable to do that in moderation, you may be better off not having it. So like yeah. if someone said, okay, Zach, you can have Coca-Cola in moderation. Then my next question is like, well, what is moderation? When should I have it? And how do I know when I should stop? And if they said like, well, you can have four ounces a day if I start out having that four ounces and then I just can't stop drinking it after that, then I know I'm probably not the candidate that can do that in moderation. Whereas, you know, maybe someone else can and then more power to them, I suppose. But um, I think like some of these are like, 
they, they kind of don't carry their full definition when they're said. So then people don't really know exactly what they're doing with it. And, and like you said, a lot of these products, these moderation products, they are designed to be hyper palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they, these, these companies make a ton of money because they sell a ton of products and they sell a ton of products because their, their stuff is super palatable and people keep buying more and more. It's what was it? Is it Lay's that their advertisement was, they're they getting pretty cocky for a while there. They're like, the Pringles, wait, you can't eat just one, right? And then Pringles <laughs> is once you pop, you can't stop. Um, well, and you know, it's, it's, most people don't know that like these companies hire food scientists. Like it is literally somebody's full-time job to find the bliss point of foods. Mm-hmm. Um, the bliss point, what is that? That's like, let's say um, you have a coffee creamer, French vanilla coffee creamer. It is somebody's full-time job to figure out exactly how sweet that needs to be and mm-hmm. to, to, to keep you coming back. Because if it's too sweet, then you're, ooh, that's, ooh, that's too sweet. If it's not sweet enough, you're like, eh, you know, same thing with salty foods, just salty enough, just fatty enough to, 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 to light up certain things in your brain and your taste buds. Like they literally are employing people to be like, how can I hook you? How can I keep you eating this food? How can I override your brain chemistry? Like that's, that's fascinating to me. I'm like, man, can you imagine like being that, like, that's your job? Like, how can mm-hmm. I override somebody's brain chemistry to make them eat more food? <laughs> but yeah, like you said, like they literally advertise it. It's not, they're not like, they're like, Oh, you know, what are we going to do? How about <laughs> once you pop, you can't stop. Like, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's you can't joke. help but laugh a little bit just because like, it's almost like they've thought they, they got done with that. Uh, I can just, I'm just envisioning like this discussion where like, you know, one of the executives walks into the laboratory and the scientist <laughs> gives him the, they're like, he's like, this is so effective. We're not even going to try to trick the consumer. We're just going to tell them you but won't even be able to stop at one and they're still going to buy it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and you know, unfortunately it's, I, I, I wish we did a better job in this country too, of encouraging people to, to buy, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole dogma that like, meat and fat are bad for you. You know, we've had that since the seventies, since Ansel Keys and the, you know, his seven countries study. Um, and that's, we're still kind of trying to overcome that. Right. You know, in my the hospital I work in, the, um, heart healthy diet is low fat, low salt, but you can order as many, I had a guy get 144 grams of carbohydrates, 70 grams of sugar at one meal, but no, very low fat, low salt. Right. Um, and then, you know, and of course on that same token, which I absolutely validate and respect is we have people that are really concerned about, you know, um, agricultural environmental impact. What is the environmental impact of raising animals? And so I think that's why it's so important to, um, you know, anytime you're trying to look at like, what food should I eat? You know, you're concerned about agriculture, the climate, like take the emotion out of it, you know, and then do a little bit of research, like ask these questions. I, as a society, we've really stopped like critical thinking you know, we see something posted on Facebook or Instagram and we're just like, oh my God. And we repost it and that's fact versus like, mm, let's, let's ask about that because we know, and you know, I know you've had Will Harris on your show, um, that regenerative agriculture where we have animals are a very important part of the process of agriculture. And when we do, they call it radically traditional agriculture, you know, where animals get to freely roam and they get to move, you know, eat grass and move around to different spots that that is like the best possible way to raise animals and also plants because you have to have the manure and actually puts carbon back in the soil. Um, so, so yeah, I definitely think that we've, you know, got it. You got to critically think a little bit and you have to, you have to stop and you have to ask questions. And, you know, another thing people will do, a lot of people I've interviewed on my YouTube is they said, you know, I went back to Weight Watchers like four or five, six times counting calories, like, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. You know, these nutrition guidelines are not working. 
You know, we, we need to, like you said, we need to think about like, okay, if this isn't working, how maybe we should try something else. We have all kinds of data that says, you know, a higher fat, high protein, lower carb diet can resensitize insulin in as little as seven days. They had a clinical trial where a guy got off 150 units of insulin in eight days by following a low carbohydrate diet. Like, you know, we need to start. And I, I will never tell somebody like, you must do this. Everybody has to do this. All people should do this. Because one, I think, you know, the human brain's just like, nope. But two, I think there is room for nuance and we're adults and we get to make decisions and kind of, you know, play around. We're all a little bit of an experiment of one. But I do think that um, it's my job to present information as, as best I know and to give facts versus just like, I'm going to show you the nutrition guidelines because that's what we've been doing since the 70s. You know, like, got to think a little bit outside. <laughs> got to do some critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's almost it'd be nice if we had like a system in place. Like, I feel like there's got to be a way instead of like, say, having guidelines that are fairly like specific to having like some sort of like, uh, like questionnaire or like survey that a person can kind of fill out and then have that kind of like lead that narrows down the list of options. So you try to find something that's going to be both like sustainable for them to adhere to as well as kind of put them in the right ballpark as to what they should try first. Right. And so then, so then it's not giving them 20 options, like I said before, but let's say maybe there's 20 different options in total, but they don't need to know about that. They can just, you know, we can narrow that list down to like two or three, and then we can start from there and see what works best. Because I think of that, like, when I think of like, other industries where there's like multiple brands and then each brand has multiple options within it. Eventually the consumer has to get around to deciding which one of those is going to work best for them. And in a lot of those cases, there are actual people that are working in that industry that helps you like identify, okay, maybe there's a hundred options here. I can whittle that down to three or four and then we can start playing around. So it's not this like endless trial and error thing, but more of a, like a tight trial and error. Absolutely. But I do think one thing that I was thinking about when you're talking is I think, I think we have to realize that um, like people are going to have to do this themselves. Like it's really going to have to be grassroots. You're going to have to take your health into your own hands. Like I don't think we're going to see health professionals do this or even a lot of dietitians do this or people in the medical industry do this one, just cause it's not cause they don't care. Like we all care and we all want to help. Um, but one, we're limited on time and resources and two, like, you know, it, when people get better and when people get healthy, you know, healthcare stops making money. Like you only make money in, at the two, like you don't make money at the two ends. Like if I heal you and you're gone, then I don't make money. If I kill you and you're gone, I don't make money. So it's like kind of by keeping people stuck and sick is where we make a lot of money is where prescription companies make a lot of money and we have elective surgeries and all these other things. So I think, you know, it's going to take the individual and it's going to take people that have potentially like stepped outside the dietetics box or maybe have started like their own practice or, you know, functional nutrition coaches or, or, you know, trainers and, you know, people like you that have podcasts and have, you know, have a platform and a voice to say like, look, there's a better way to do this, you know? Um, but I don't think we're going to see that from like the mainstream health anytime soon, mainstream healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a, a scenario where like you get to that. I think um, someone was sharing with me, I can't remember where it was that uh, I think it was maybe Brazil's guideline. I don't know if they call them guidelines. They have like, they call them something, but it's like, it's way different in the way it's structured where it's not necessarily trying to favor 
one approach over the other, but it's, it's rather just saying like, here is like what you should maybe consider. And then after you consider that it's kind of up to you to pick. So it doesn't feel quite as much like you're being told what to do. And it feels a little more like there's more than one way to do this. And Mm -hmm. it's like, here, here's your, here's the way to figure out how you should combine things to make it work for you. And I thought that was kind of cool. If you could make it, if you could make it on, or like, if you could make it, in a way that's not too confusing for folks. It's just like you said, I think the other uphill battle that maybe goes unnoticed here is just like people don't really have time to like sit down for two to three hours a day and research and decide and trial sure. and error. Cause eventually they get around to eating something and then carrying on with other things in life, like their job, their family, friends, and all that other stuff. So it gets almost, I guess, maybe self-defeating after a while. If you have, like you said, making it too complicated or too open-ended. Yeah, absolutely. But I like that. I I do think people need choice. And I don't think it has to be all one way or another. You know, I do know some people do do fine with a higher carb, lower fat diet. You know, I think um, most people are going to do better, you know, with having more fat and more protein because of all the vitamins and minerals and, you know, absorbable nutrition. But I I do think, you know, you don't ever want to like black and white box things out it would be, I think it would be very helpful to say like, here, here's this idea and this is how you can do it. You know, here's this idea and this is how you can do it and giving people something very basic. Cause it needs to be very simple. You know, when I first started following, you know, a lower carbohydrate, you know, higher protein diet, it was just simple. It was like, okay, I'm going to eat beef and water and a lot of butter a few times a day. Like that was easy, you know, where, cause no, unless you're a professional and you know, yep. Bless you're, making millions of dollars or you're independently wealthy, you're not going to have time to soak and sprout and this and that, you know? So we, we need things that are relatively convenient. And you also like, you need, it's going to have to be things you want to eat. You know, that was one, that was the one of the major problems of the low fat movement. Like, you know, when we removed all the fat um, in the seventies from the recommendations, when they said, Oh, we need low fat, you know, they came out with all these low fat foods, but they're like, Oh my gosh, these taste terrible. And so to make them taste better, they added a ton of sugar and then, you know, diabetes and obesity went to the chart. Like you have to, humans are going to want to eat things that are good and satiating. So you need to find a, a way of eating that you enjoy. You're going to, it's going to be sustainable. You're not going to be hungry. Um, <laughs> I could tell you so many stories of patients and family members who sneak in food to the patients when they're on highly restrictive diets. It's really silly. I had a lady like wheel herself out, <laughs> wheelchair to the cafeteria. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, you, you, humans are driven, you know, to, to want to, 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 to eat enough, you know, you can't be hungry, you can't feel deprived. So by making sure that whatever way you're eating that you, you know, you're meeting those requirements is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I think just when you when you start to unpack a lot of this stuff, you just realize it's like, it just it kind of gets more and more complicated the further you get. But yeah. you, you said something that I thought was interesting, too, where it, it parallels nicely with kind of what I was taught in education too, which is like, you know, you have this new group of students who are like, you know, just unaware of what they're about to learn for the most part. So if I started with like the content that I was planning on getting to by the fourth quarter of the school year, these kids would check out by week two. Mm-hmm. But if I start out with like week one and week two material in the beginning and just essentially get them interested and on the right track then we can just kind of like take small steps all the way through the school year till the end where we get to that end goal. And, and that's what kind of makes it intuitive for them by the end, even within a complicated set of like requirements. So it seems like with maybe the dietary guidelines in general, or even just nutrition in general, perhaps it's like, 
you kind of, you, you, if you dump all this information on someone who hasn't have a background in that, then it just overcomplicates it to the degree where they're almost doomed to fail because they're, they have too much information at once versus kind of like what you said, the, the reason I think sometimes these like some of these like more polarizing dietary trends are a little easier for people that have success with them is because it is very simplified. And that's what uh, Sean would always say. It's like, you know, when I'm working with folks who are motivated to try this, the real key starting point is make it simple, make it easy. Don't make it confusing. Cause if you make it confusing, they're going to fail. And if they fail, even if it's their fault because they did something wrong, it's just going to get a negative, a negative stereotype about it in terms of being unsustainable or undoable. And, uh, you know, may, maybe keeping it simple in the beginning, you're not necessarily checking all the box of your long-term needs, but you're doing it in a way where you will get to that eventually and, and ultimately be where you need to be versus, you know, trying to get there on the first day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I do think that, it, you know, it's kind of like training for any, like an ultra or a, you know, yeah, marathon, yeah. you know, you don't start out being like, okay, well, we're going to win 50 miles. So today we're running 50 miles. It'd be like, holy crap. You know, it's, you kind of step into it, you know, and the human body is incredible. It's, it's amazing and adaptable. And I think like, you know, we talked about earlier, giving your body like a reset where you really do back off and are just maybe eating meat and fat for a while um, can be really good for the body. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do that forever. But, um, but yeah, I do think that we, we really overcomplicated nutrition and you're going to get, like I said, you're going to get so many different answers and there's so much confusion. Um, and then you'll have people that say, well, just do what works for you. <laughs> well, you know, if I'm asking her, I probably don't know what works for me. You know, <laughs> even how I'm we here. treat diabetes in this country, like I, I understand why people take insulin because it's like, you know, it's like, okay, so I can keep eating what I'm eating. I don't have to change. Okay, cool. You know, but most of the diabetic patients I work with, you know, getting 75 to 90 grams of carbohydrates in a meal, then they have to inject themselves with insulin. And it's not like a one-to-one ratio. You know, you may, some people are more or less sensitive, so they might need more or they might, you know, whatever insulin they injected might drop them low. So they may have to eat more carbohydrates. Like we, it's so, con- we've made it too confusing. I truly believe this. I really think we've made it too confusing. And that's why I think, you know, I would encourage people that, you know, if you're someone struggling, like take a step back, like back up and maybe get back to some very, very basics and then build out from there. You know, and it's the same thing, like you said, with them. Um, so with like training, you know, training for an ultra, like when I was, um, as I've been doing my longer runs, you know, I'm brand new. Like I have never run over, um, you know, 26 miles <laughs> before. So kind of like figuring it out, giving yourself kind of the time and the grace to be like, okay, I'm going to try a few different things. I'm going to try some different fueling sources and see how this goes, you know, um, and just be okay. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not married to anybody other than my wife. Like I'm not dogmatic. I get, I get a little worried with people that are like, this is all I'm doing forever. I'm eating this way <laughs> nutrition, you know, your body changes. Like I, I've even since, you know, you and I started working together about a year ago, which yeah. When you said that, I was like, Oh my gosh, this last year has felt like 20 years. <laughs> um but yeah you know I've shifted my nutrition I I went you know almost completely ketogenic to now a little bit high you know it's not higher carb but like 75 to 100 grams of carbs a day um and that's worked really well and I'm I'm able I'm open and I'm flexible to that you know and I'm okay to be it's okay to be wrong it's okay to try something and it not work I think sometimes we're you know, we get caught up in like, oh, the social media, what people are posting world when it's like, hey, you know what, we're all growing, we're all learning, we're all trying new things. But you know, I think you start with the foundation. And then you, you know, you kind of build out and figure out what what specifically works for for you and for your goals, too. You know, that's another thing I tell people, like the goals of um, someone who is, you know, 
300 pounds overweight who's diabetic is very, very different than I had a young lady with an eating disorder who was severely underweight contact me. Like her nutrition goals are very different. Mm -hmm. You know, she was scared to try to incorporate certain foods. I'm like, no, you need to eat. So where this person, you know, their nutrition, they can probably take away from. So I think you also have to be aware kind of like where your health is and where your life is and kind of like what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And I think that translates perfectly to the world of athletics too, because when we talk about like carbohydrate requirements for, you know, say to run a marathon, it's like, well, first of all, we're, we're already off base by saying the marathon because there, you know, you have someone who's like one of the best marathoners in the world running it in less or, you know, right around two hours. And, you know, someone who's, you know, got, got an actual like what life family and <laughs> obligations and stuff. And they're, you know, training at like a third of the capacity of the professional, you know, they probably don't need to try to intake 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour on every single one of their training. Runs. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just a different, and, and then even the time frame too, it's like, you look at the average finishing time in a marathon, you know, you're going to have some in the four or five hour range and it's a different sport at four to five hours than it is at two hours from an intensity standpoint. So people get confused by that too. And it's, it's probably just, you know, we could go full circle back to what we were just talking about almost with, with the training side of things too, where um, you almost have to take it to the individual level to uncomplicate it enough uh, for the person to actually understand what they should be doing and why versus just watching what someone else is doing who may be in a completely different context than them. Yeah. A hundred percent context. Context is everything. Context is truly everything when it comes to, um, you know, your nutrition, your training, you know, we, I could, we could do tons of different examples, but I mean, you know, even, you know, with like, let's say cholesterol, like LDL, your LDL, you know, most people have kind of associated like low density lipoprotein, like, Oh, that's so bad. We want to have LDL low. Well, you know, if you're very diabetic and you your A1C, your blood sugar over time is really, really high having a high LDL can be very dangerous because we know that, um, you know, insulin resistance and high blood sugar can damage your arteries and LDL can get trapped in there. But if not, if you're, you know, your metabolic, your metabolically healthy and everything's normal, LDL is incredibly important in the immune system and can kill bacteria, pathogen, and viruses. So you'd want a higher LDL, you know, and with training, you know, if you're running a five hour marathon, if your heart rate, let's say is, you know, 135 or one is, is in zone one or two, you're going to be burning a very different fuel substrate, you know, a lot more fat um, and a lot less carbohydrates than if you're in, you know, your heart rate's 160 or 170, you're going to be burning more carbohydrates, but you're also going to be finishing quicker. So you're, Mm -hmm. you know, it's different. It can't just be, and you know, unfortunately so many of the running books and articles, it's just everybody needs to eat carbohydrates all the time. (laughs) And it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So I I appreciate it. I've listened to a lot of your, um, your podcast that you're very, you know, open on talking about like, Hey, we've got to find out what works for the person, their goals, their training, that type of thing. Yeah. And I think it gets interesting too, with, uh, endurance sport as well. Cause like most folks are doing some sort of periodized training plan too. So it's like, I mean, you, you described it. Like when you started, we started out doing like foundational stuff, like base work stuff. So relatively low intensity, So at that point in the program, it was a good spot for you to play around with like a very low to no carbohydrate approach. But then once you kind of get into the part of the schedule, we're working on like short intervals and then ultimately targeting like what I think is the most interesting set of training, which is kind of like your lactic threshold or um, what a lot of folks will call like a tempo run is like this very awkward kind of 
intensity where you can do enough of it that you're going to dip into your glycogen stores, regardless of what your dietary habits are. But it's also slow enough that you can amass a fairly decent amount of volume at it. And that kind of puts you in that tricky spot where, um, but you're, there's probably two things to maybe think about with it. One is just like the oxygen requirements at that intensity are quite high. And, you know, it does take less oxygen to metabolize a carbohydrate than it does a fat. So there is these areas of intensity that are just kind of like, you need to be willing, I think, in a scenario where you're looking for max performance potential to look at all macronutrients as tools and then decide kind of like, how do I use this tool and at what quantity versus kind of an all or nothing approach that you might be able to get away with kind of earlier in the training plan or later. And then the funny thing I always think about like ultra marathon stuff, especially when you get up into kind of the hundred mile plus distances, you almost kind of come back to what you were doing in the beginning because race day intensity is, is so low compared to like more standard distance stuff that, yeah. you know, when I describe what I do during certain training blocks, sometimes I think people will latch to like one of the periodized segments of my plan. Like, okay, well, I think I got a grasp of what, what Zach's doing nutritionally. And then all of a sudden a month or two later, I'm doing something slightly differently because I'm in a different system of training. And they're like, why does it keep changing? <laughs> Just tell us how, it's go, how it goes and then, and then do it. So it is, uh, again, appreciate how complicated it can be for someone who's, especially if they're looking at it, from a different sport or just health and lifestyle in general that it, it can be looking kind of complicated, but um, it's always fun to work with folks like yourself and kind of walk through that process of uh, what are we going to target for this phase of training from a nutritional standpoint and essentially let the workouts be the guide. And, you know, for you, you are a great example too, because uh, you know, we get to that point where as a coach, I'm leaning on you heavily um, to kind of report back to me. Cause when I'm training, like there's things I feel in a workout that drives what I'm going to do nutritionally and drives what I'm going to do from my future training stimulus and my recovery protocol and things like that. What makes it more difficult when you're coaching someone is you lean on them to report that back to you. And then you have to interpret it the way that you would, if you were actually feeling it. So like, I love it when I get athletes who they'll come back after a workout and say like, this felt slightly different here, there. And, uh, you know, those are the type of things that I need to know to kind of say like, okay, well, let's try introducing a little bit of carbohydrate and see if that makes you feel better. Or in some cases, let's try reducing it. Um, and you know, you get, you get to a point where it, you can kind of fine tune things for people uh, based on what they're doing. And it, it tends to work the more basically long story short, the more information, the better in, in terms of kind of unpacking a lot of that stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't want to keep you too long. So we've been going for over an hour, almost an hour and a half here, but, um, uh, I do want to give you a chance to kind of just share with the audience kind of what you're working towards from a training standpoint, as well oh, sure. as, share some of the places that they can find you both on YouTube, social media, your book, when is that coming out and all that sort of stuff. Cause I'm sure there'll be people who are interested in finding out some of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me on Instagram. I am on Instagram at um, run, eat, meet, repeat. And um, I have a YouTube channel. It's called the dietitian's dilemma. And that is also what my book is going to be called. Uh, yeah. The book writing has been incredible. It's been challenging and terrible and wonderful. Uh, it was my goal to have it out by the fall, but it looks like it's going to be towards the end of the year. But if you follow me on Instagram, um, you know, I'm going to have updates. We're in the process of the second draft right now. 
Um, but yeah, it's my hope to have it published uh, sometime in December. So that's that's the goal. Oh, and my my race, I have a, a six hour race on November seventh. That, like you were saying, I've had two races canceled, so we're really hoping this doesn't get canceled. Um, but yeah, it's my goal to run to run eight ten pace uh, for the entire uh, six hours. So that's what we're going for. Yeah, I'm I'm confident you have have what it takes to do that. I'm really looking forward to see you get that first one in the books because it's always. Um, I, I don't know. I, I give you so much credit for sticking with it because I just know how much motivation I got from kind of doing the first race I did first ultra marathon I did to kind of like even start building for the next one. It can be difficult to, to not get that kind of, I guess you call it like a report card almost from the race <laughs> itself. Cause you know, I, I don't mind bad races. I've had plenty of them myself and my clients have them as well. And, you know, we have a bad race, a good race, a great race. There's so much you can kind of take from that to restructure the next like phase of training and how you're going to do things and then ultimately individualize it. So for you, you've been, you'll, by the time we get this race done, you'll have been waiting almost a year to kind of get that, <laughs> get that return and, and find out what direction should we go next kind of a, a thing. So uh, um, no one will accuse you of not staying driven and motivated, which is <laughs> probably Thank one you. of the best. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's been a long time. So that's, there have been a few times where I'm just like, oh my gosh, but in general, I'm, I'm really happy. So I'm excited. Awesome, Michelle. Well, I'll definitely link your social media and YouTube stuff and everything else into the show notes so listeners can click over. Um, is it too early to pre-order the book? Uh, yes. Hopefully we will have pre-order in, in November. So we got about, well, gosh, it's almost October, about a month you'll be able to pre-order. Okay, cool. So the directions for listeners who are interested in that is uh, follow Michelle on social media. I'm sure <laughs> she'll let you know when it's time to pre-order and, and I'll be sure to make an announcement on the show when that comes out too, if you're interested in and seeing thank what she's got to say. But thank you so much for taking some time and sharing your story, Michelle. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at zach.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.